Tendons don't respond to different types of contraction. They respond to strain and stress. So they all, all they know is are they being pulled on and how fast are they being pulled on. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. If you tuned in to the Pacey Performance Podcast a few weeks ago and listened to the Keith Barr episode, which many of you did because I've had some incredible feedback, this is a really, really good follow-on from that episode. And if you haven't checked it out, make sure you do it dives into the depths of uh, training tendons for dynamic performance and for injury risk reduction as well. But in this episode with Luke Vella, again, we dive into uh, training the tendon and why that's so important and some of the things that Luke has done at Edinburgh, but will also carry through into his new role as lead strength and conditioning coach at the Melbourne Rebels. We also have a little chat around blood flow restriction training and how that is incorporated into the rehab process that Luke goes through for many different injuries. So if you're if you have any input into the rehab process in the organization that you work in, this episode is definitely for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Luke Vella. Luke Vella, welcome to the Pace of Performance podcast. You come with abs- an absolutely raving review from one of your ex-colleagues, Nick Lumley, so no pressure at all, but thanks for coming on. <laughs> Sounds like he stitched me up there. No, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here and, uh, and I appreciate the invite. My pleasure, my pleasure. 
So a little bit of a transition back home, out of Edinburgh to um, back to Oz, and a little couple of changes while you've been there already. But congratulations on your new role. Would you be able to give us a bit of a, a brief background on you, maybe why the transition happened back to Oz, what was happening before in Edinburgh, and uh, yeah, a bit of an overview. Yeah, for sure. So I started out in uh, in Aussie rules football uh, with a stint at Collingwood uh, in starting in two thousand eight, uh, and then over to to St Kilda Footy Club from twenty eleven. Uh, also did a little bit of uh, work in uh, in Olympic track cycling with the Malaysian squad uh, in the lead up to the London Olympics during that time as well. Um, we then decided uh, a family decision to move over to the UK to support my wife's career. She's the the sports psychologist for the British diving team. Um, and so I took up a role uh, with the University of Bath, um, which was my first experience in a in a multi sport environment, and, and had me working with um, with uh, some some British judo squads, uh, tennis academy based out there, Super League netball, and the the, the TAS uh, scholarship scheme, and uh, and so that's what led me up to, to Edinburgh Rugby with, uh, with 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 Nick, and um, I've spent the last four and a half years there. That was my first exposure to, to rugby union. Um, in that time, we also had uh, had a little boy Leo, and uh, we had him during the during the lockdown, and uh, he still hasn't met his grandparents yet, and and so he was really the the reason that we decided to move home was uh, was to get the family um, together again and and get our young fella around his uh, around his grandparents. Nice. Is your wife? Did you say? Is my wife? Yeah, Laura. Yeah, your wife. I didn't want to say wife; it was girlfriend. But yeah, so your wife is still. She's obviously still not involved with the British diving. She is so she stayed on oh, till to, uh, till um, till for, for the Tokyo Games, obviously that uh, that are on currently, and so she's it actually worked better for her to be in Australia during the games um, in terms of fielding phone calls and, and bits and pieces like that from athletes, and, and so she'll be with the, with the British divers until uh, until the end of the games. And they've done they've done well so far. They have, yeah. So really a good well. start with her, with the gold medal. So she's um, yeah she's buzzing. Nice. I'm always really interested in people that transition to jobs overseas what was that like for you as Nozzy coming to the UK yeah it was a, it was a massive challenge especially because the, the the job itself was so foreign to me in in terms of uh, there was a massive difference between being an SNC coach in a in a professional team sport environment where you see your athletes for for five to six hours a day um, into a multi-sport environment where you might be working with a group of 12 year old football players uh, with the Southampton Academy and then over to to a hundred kilo judo competitor, to a group of netball girls, it really challenged uh, challenges your ability to coach and, and to interact with people and interact with different coaches and and, and solve problems really, and and so that was a, a massive challenge. And I've certainly found that the UK system and the Australian system they're just different. Like UK based practitioners are are different to Australian based practitioners, and it's really difficult to put your finger on how and why, but. I've worked with a lot of Australians over uh, in the UK that transitioned over, and and the majority have said the same thing. It's it's a different system, and I think that's what makes it such a good learning experience. Is is you learn from people who have had completely different educational backgrounds and, and different coaching experiences to what you've had. And um, yeah, it, it was a massive challenge, but um, I'd recommend it so highly for anyone um, looking to progress their career and develop themselves as a coach. It's it, it's a massive challenge, but a worthwhile one. I hate to offend you here, but you've got a little bit of an English accent going on there as well. I know it got worse when I was in Bath. Um, Sorry. No, it's definitely there. Um, when I went up to Scotland, I couldn't really understand what they said a lot of the time, so I, I didn't really pick up much of a Scottish accent. But hopefully, getting back home, that'll that'll disappear pretty quickly. Mm. 
just one thing on you on that on that bath roll and a lot of people I think there's two schools of thought of course there's the I am the rugby guy and I'm going to stick in rugby and I'm going to go deep in that sport or there's the I appreciate that get involved in the sports can give her a wider perspective to then narrow down when we do get a job in a, in a given sport where do you stand and has that changed based on your experience yeah that's that's an excellent question and a really good point at the end there i think it has changed um i've really valued the opportunity to go into other other sports and to and to learn um or, or to encounter different challenges um as an snc coach and, and work with different coaches uh, and, and figure out how to work with different athletes. Um, I think it just gives you such a um, a, a broader skill set to to draw upon before really narrowing in on a on, on a certain sport. Uh, even for me, the, the concept when I went to Edinburgh rugby union was completely new to me and a completely different sport. And it, it probably took me the first two to three years there to to understand just how intense and how physical that sport is before I felt like I was really able to do a, a good job. But um, but I, I sit on the side of, of, of trying your hand at, at multiple sports and, um, and, and, and challenging yourself to be really effective as an SNC coach across different platforms. So you were at Edinburgh in more of a rehab role, is that right? That's right, yeah. So, so my background as an SNC coach, um, in my last year at Collingwood, um, I, I managed the rehab group and it was more through circumstance than, than anything that, that sort of ended me in that role. Um, and I, I had the same role over at St Kilda, where I where I managed the rehab group and and sort of uh, developed myself as a as a bit of a rehabber through through experience and, and grew to love the role and and as I transitioned over into the UK, uh, the, the title and the it sort of stuck and and so that was that was my reputation when when Nick approached me about the the job at Edinburgh and um, and that's just really continued to evolve over the last four years and so it's it's really been a, a learn on the job um, type of scenario for me my PhD was and my studies weren't weren't particularly in athlete rehabilitation but it, it's certainly the way my career's uh, been driven over uh, over the past probably eight to ten years because we are seeing more especially here I'm not quite sure elsewhere in the world but especially specifically here seeing more rehab focused job titles and job roles probably what you had at edinburgh but i think that's becoming more prevalent is that because people are seeing it as a very much a, a niche skill set because i'm guessing for five or ten years ago maybe people didn't have as much as many staff and it just got bundled in with an snc coaches or sports scientist role but do you see it as a, a very specific skill set that should be differentiated from your your general SNC coach? I hope so, because that's kind of the role I've, I've cut out for myself. But <laughs> um, but no, I do. And, and I think probably, like you say, five, ten years ago, that the, the, the injury or the injured player programs were being managed by your junior SNC coach as an opportunity to to, to cut your teeth as, a, as an SNC. But, but I think injury rates continue to, to, to go up and we learn more and more about, about risk factors and, and rehabilitation strategies, but injuries continue to rise. And, and I think people are starting to understand that, that if you want to get on top of, of rates of injury within your club, you need someone with a specialist skill set and someone who's invest, invested their time and effort into, into learning about, about different pathologies and, and, and different rehab strategies and, and, and these other bits and pieces. And so I think that's becoming more and more accepted and, and that was certainly something that Nick tried to uh, tried to change up at Edinburgh in how he structured his department, and um, fortunately for me, that that landed me up there. 
I actually spoke to Nick in preparation for this, just a couple of texts back and forth, and was like, what's Luke's, like, where, where's his skill set? What is what is he really good at? What does he absolutely nail? So I don't know if I told you this, but the po- the points that we've got were kind of a collaboration between myself and, and Nick, obviously, who, who worked alongside you for a, a while and knows you very well. So we're going to have a little dive into the tendon management, if that's all right. And it was, absolutely it was, fine. Something, <clears throat> it was something that I spoke very much in depth to Keith Barr about, obviously a bit of a legend in that in that area. And the episode absolutely blew up. People loved it. Didn't realise how mad people were for tendons. Like, <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah, people went mad for it. So I'm just going to ask you from a very much an applied, uh, get an applied view of, of that discussion, if that's okay. And then I'd like, so I'd like to start off with tips for managing tendon health uh, and just get your view on that and then we can i'm sure the conversation will uh will, will fly off from there yeah of course um and i mean i've obviously listened to, to keith's podcast and and his wealth of knowledge is is exceptional in that area um and and there's a there's a real sort of uh, development of our knowledge in, in tendon management at the moment being led by people like keith um and, and there's a another researcher down in um uh, at Queen Mary University of London, uh, Professor Hazel Screen. She's a, a professor of biomedical engineering. And these types of researchers who are, who are really driven by a scientific background are, are really advancing our knowledge in, in how we manage tendons. And it's it's a really exciting time to to be involved in, in that area. Um, in terms of managing tendons from a, from a professional team sport perspective, um, I think it's really important to actually appreciate firstly what we don't know about tendons and and that helps to inform what we actually can influence and what we can uh, impact on because we really don't know a lot still. Um, we still don't really understand uh, the source of, of tendon pain. Uh, we know that, that there's likely a, a local mechanism of pain stemming from the tendon itself. We know there's likely to be centrally driven mechanisms uh, stemming from the brain and, and the spinal cord, uh, but we don't really know what drives tendon pain. Um, and we're still really starting to understand how adaptable tendons can be and, and how adaptable tendons are. And a lot of that stems from, from, from research from, from Keith's group and, and research from Professor Screen's group. Um, we're starting to learn a lot more about actually just how adaptable tendons can be. Um, and the other thing that makes tendons really difficult to manage is, is tendon, in, in a case of a tendinopathy, you can have changes in the pathology, you can have changes in how the tendon functions, and you can have changes in symptoms. And those three things can occur all independent of one another. We don't really understand how those three things are interrelated. So you can have changes in pathology without necessarily having any symptoms. You can have symptoms without having changes in function. All three of them may even coexist. Um, and so for me, that the number one thing that, um, that, that needs to be that needs to be or you need to start with in trying to successfully manage a tendon is you need to understand on an individual level um, the relationship between load pain and function within each of your athletes and that was one of the things that we invested quite a lot of time in in our athletes who struggle with tendon pain at edinburgh Um, so we'd effectively go through a a subjective monitoring process with those players um, and and utilized our, our sports science guys and our data analytics guys to understand how those changes in symptom would um would be influenced by different types of load um for a professional rugby player and and that certainly impacted how we how we managed our athletes um both day to day and also and also long term it it gave us indications of how effective our strategies were being um and and then i think 
you also need to understand concepts of of how to effectively load a tendon and Keith went into this in in great detail in in your previous podcast but I think what was really important concept for me was to understand that tendons are not a contractile tissue and so when you hear debates about the different contraction types and how do we load a tendon successfully the contraction type doesn't matter tendons don't respond to different types of contraction they respond to strain and stress so they all all they know is are they being pulled on and how fast are they being pulled on they'll adapt accordingly so you use different contraction types to modify how your neuromuscular system responds and we know that changes in the neuromuscular system are essential in managing tendinopathy and you can also use different contraction types to modify stress and strain to, to try and appropriately load a tendon um, and so for me, there was, there was really four key concepts that, um, that an effective loading strategy needs to be. Uh, and first of all, the loading strategy needs to be individualized. And so very rarely does tendinopathy exist in isolation. We know with, say, patella tendon, for example, there's probably four or five um, um, d- differential diagnoses that, that might coexist or, or that may be misdiagnosed. And so you need to develop an individualized loading strategy based on how provocative the tendon is and how provocative other structures around the tendon are. The second thing you need to consider is that it needs to be it needs to be really hard. Um, and so we know from from lots of different research and, and, and systematic analysis from Peter Maliaris's group in uh, at Monash University that it needs to be at about at least a seventy percent of a one repetition max if you're talking about um, it, the intensity of loading. We also know that the exercises that you select should be really simple. Um, so tendons have a, a real knack of hiding within a kinetic chain. Um, so really simple exercises that will load the target muscle and, and load the tendon effectively will be really important. Um, and, and then the final one to consider is that it needs to be intensive. So really bringing those, two, those last two concepts together, it, you need to give the athlete an opportunity to produce high amounts of force to load the tendon effectively. Um, so for example if you're using an isometric contraction you need to be choosing muscle lengths at which the muscle has an opportunity to produce high amounts of force and that can be driven by both symptoms and also the length tension relationship of that muscle there's loads to go out there i'm going to rewind it right back to the start and just go symptoms so what kind of symptoms were you seeing in your athletes who had tendon issues just so people can get an idea if they are going through it and try to differ it understand what's going on what kind of symptoms are we are we normally normally seeing yeah of course so um so we looked at um for a for someone with patella tendon pain we looked at, at two different tests we always oh, sorry three tests effectively um we wanted to look at um a subjective rating out of 10 for all of our options uh and we would look at morning stiffness um uh, as one of our indicators and that's first that's that, that's recorded first thing in the morning uh, we then look at a single leg decline squat um, to, to subject the athlete to a compression load. Uh, and we then look at uh, a repeated single leg submaximal kind of movement jump um, to, to look at subjecting them to an energy storage load. Um, they then record that as a subjective rating out of 10. And we do that prior to all of our, um, all of our main training sessions. In the instance of an Achilles tendon, we'd go, we'd go through the same process. So we would look at, um, we would look at a measure of morning stiffness. We'd look at a subjective measure of discomfort under a compressive load. So that would be a a single leg calf raise off a step. Um, And then we'd look at um, more of a single leg hopping task, like a single leg pogo jump, uh, and then record their subjective scores there. Um, Yeah. So I guess one of the other three was was function. 
So mm-hmm. what function, what um, reductions in function would you see with someone with tendon? Again, going through the maybe the two examples that you've just given. Sure. Yeah. So our process effectively was um, first of all, when the athlete would present to us in the morning, we'd look to identify whether there's been a change in the athlete's symptoms. And if the answer to that was no, that's the end of, of our monitoring with them. They'll, they'll crack on with the day's training. If the answer was yes, our next step would be to try and understand, can we modify that athlete's pain through an exercise-based intervention? So do they respond to, to, to an effective warm-up strategy, whether that's with isometric loading um, or, or, or whatever else we use, a blood flow restriction training protocol? Um, and if the answer to that was, was no, we'd then go on to look at whether or not there'd been a reduction in muscle function. Um, and typically for for that parameter, we would look at using for a uh, for a patellotendinopathy, uh, we'd look at a counter movement jump um, on our four steps, and we'd look at primarily eccentric impulse, uh, but also looking at um, uh, looking at concentric mean power, and, and likewise with an Achilles tendon, we'd look at a bilateral drop jump and and, and look at um, look at limb symmetry um, in both of those tests effectively, and. The, the the summation of all of those bits and pieces would then inform our decision making process whether it's the right thing to do to to put this athlete out to train um, on any given day whether modification was required um, or whether they were good to crack on and we were happy with um, with with small or, or moderate changes in their symptoms I'm sorry but we're going to be here forever because I've got so many questions <laughs> based on what you're saying <laughs> I'm going to kill your evening um, so blood flow restriction training let's have a little dive into that and seems that you've said it and it's been on my mind anyway mm-hmm. what would be the protocols that you would use to try to get um to, uh, <laughs> try to improve the a function going into going through that process that you've just mentioned yeah sure so most of the research around using blood flow restriction training to to, to relieve pain um in different conditions of, of anterior knee pain in particular um, they've used that the, the common intervention that a lot of people have probably would have heard about with blood flow restriction training, which is your your 30, 15, 15, 15, or, or, or a combination of failure sets. Uh, but effectively, they've been highly fatiguing, uh, high load protocols with a reasonably high limb occlusion pressure. Uh, what we've just done at Edinburgh is gone through a little bit of an in-house trial um, where we've looked at using a low-load blood flow restriction training protocol to see if we could get the same changes in, um, in pain relief uh, without impacting on muscle performance. Uh, so effectively what we did there was uh, we tested our, our, our symptoms off. We used patella tendon pain as our example. Uh, people get a little bit nervous when you start doing too much calf loading prior to a pitch session. So we used um, uh, our athletes with either patella tendinopathy or, or, or another form of anterior knee pain. They'd go through their normal morning monitoring pro- protocol um, in combination with a, a pre-exercise counter-movement jump. We'd then go through our blood flow restriction training protocol, which was four sets of 10 um, of a seated leg extension and a decline goblet squat. Um, and we looked at uh, a two set, sorry, a three second eccentric phase with a one second concentric phase using a 50% limb occlusion pressure um, and a two minute rest with the cuffs off in between the exercises. And what we were able to show there was, was roughly a 45% um, reduction in the athlete's symptoms uh, and a, a two to 3% increase in, in counter movement jump performance. So, the, those results aren't quite as large as the, the improvements that you see with a higher blood flow restriction training protocol. You tend to see up around 60 to 65%. But 
but a really effective intervention nonetheless and uh, and something that we were comfortable to incorporate as as part of a pre-training strategy because we were confident that that there wasn't going to be an impact on on muscle performance would you get have any athletes that wouldn't respond to that bfi so there were a couple of things that we found um or i say we found that were anecdotal uh within that study um is that like I mentioned before, the, the, the impact of the intervention seemed to adhere to a dose-response relationship. Um, so the harder it was, um, the, the more pain relief we seemed to get. So it became a little bit of a balancing act as to, as to what our protocols for each of our athletes ended up being. Um, and there, there also seemed to be a little bit of a process of diminishing returns. Um, and so with some of our athletes who, who initially responded really well, um, they started to see less and less of effect uh, as they went further into the further into the process of, of the research trial. And so we trialed with those athletes, switching the exercises effectively to, to, to increase the mechanical load just a little bit. And they started to respond really well again. And so purely anecdotal, but we did, we, we did see a, a process of diminishing returns with, with our BFR protocols. So another thing that you used was isometrics, you said, during that then increase function during the uh, during the warm up phase before the before training. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? What you what that looked like? Um, yeah, so we used our well, really we experiment a little bit with with each of our athletes because, like I mentioned, the the driver of pain in in, in tendinopathy and um, is is highly individualized. The the combination of pathologies that each athlete is going to present to you with is is always going to be a little bit different and a little bit unique and. And so you need to trial a few different interventions, especially pre-training, to see what's going to give that athlete the most effective response. So we certainly found with with some athletes that an isometric loading protocol was uh, was really effective. Others didn't respond well at all. Um, so it was a bit of trial and error. We, we tended to start with um, with Ebony Rio's protocol of uh, five sets of forty five seconds on a really isolated exercise. So we'd start with a seated leg extension. Um, we, we didn't look at, uh, at testing or predicting one repetition max. We, we used RPE as our scale of intensity and, and looked to progress the athlete to be reporting uh, a 7 out of 10 or greater on their, um, on their RPE. And I think the important thing that we looked to do there was, was also track performance on that as, a, as, a, as an isolated exercise for, for that athlete because essentially we want to change the, the function of the muscle and we want to change the, the force generating potential of that muscle and we need to continue to 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 adapt their protocol as they get better at it and so we did play around with different protocols to, to try and improve those qualities we looked at at the 30 second mark which is which is what keith sort of implement or, or indicated was was where you look to see the greatest stress relaxation response or the greatest bang for your buck with your stress relaxation response but we'd also go down to as short as as, as 15 seconds as a pre-training strategy to um, to again try and give the athlete an opportunity to to, to lift heavier weights and, and to progress their strength in, in that particular type of exercise. So those those players that responded to this these interventions pre-training would train as per usual or would there be modifications based on the impact of them pre-training activities? It would be really individualized. Um, so some of our backs, for example, who are, who are a little bit more highly tuned and a little bit more sensitive to, to changes in pain, um, we, we'd be a little bit more receptive to them in, in how they were managed and we'd be a little bit more responsive to, um, to their changes in symptoms. Some of our forwards who, who were just sort of keen to crack in and, and get on with it, 
we would be a little bit more accommodating there as well. So it was really an individual process to to understand what changes in symptoms and what changes in function were, were problematic in that athlete and, and what what changes were, I guess, a warning sign for us that that, that athlete was was actually heading down a um, down a dangerous path and, and, and intervention was going to become necessary rather than rather than proactive um, so that was really a process of, of being as individual as we can and, and I think that's where the the data collection processes at Edinburgh are, are really strong uh, we collect a lot we collect a lot of data and, and and we collect it really regularly and I think only when you do that does that process then become valuable because you can understand with each individual what's important and and what changes really do matter so when you say about the force, force plates being used to understand the function, if you didn't have force plates like many practitioners out there won't, what would be your alternative? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. And um, I, th- I, I think if I didn't have access to, to that level of diagnostic capability, uh, I'd probably rely a lot more heavily on my changes in symptom to help inform my decision-making process. Um, because like I mentioned, changes in in tendon function can often be hidden within a kinetic chain and and you, you may not necessarily be able to, um, to to visualize or quantify those changes if you don't have higher access to diagnostic capability um, so i would probably look at relying a lot more heavily on my uh, firstly whether they're presented with uh, with increases in symptom and secondly whether or not um, those symptoms are responsive to exercise that they'd become my two primary um, primary decision making diagnostics at that point so when you say about individualization, is it <clears throat> is that management of tendon very much, is it quite sporadic in terms of the individualization or is it, can, is it quite, you can book it quite, book it athletes quite easily? I mean, the more data that you collect on your athletes, the more you can anticipate trends, the more you can understand Um if, if one of our second rowers has has had 40 jumps over the course of over the course of the week we expect he's going to be sore and we can start to understand what type of what type of response we're going to see from him so once you have um, that that data at your disposal yeah you can start to you can start to predict things a little bit and you can start to proactively modify those athletes in the gym as you as you need to but but I think the fluidity of, of, of tendon management is is really important and 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 you need to be able to recognize when to respond and, and, and how to, how to respond and uh, and sometimes the hardest thing is to is to is to proactively rest an athlete but if you're confident that it's the right thing to do and you've got the diagnostics and the data to support your decision um, then 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 it can be the right thing to do so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Luke hoping join part one so over in part two we have a little bit more of a chat around blood flow restriction training and the place that it takes in the rehab process for Luke when he was at Edinburgh, but also what he will take forward into his new role at the Melbourne Rebels. We also have a little chat around benchmarking and creating appropriate benchmarks during the rehab process. So again, if you're interested or have any involvement in the rehab process at your organisation, this part two is definitely for you. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Blackbox Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. 
If you want to learn more about Black Box, check out their website, blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at Black Box Fitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology, and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL, and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research, and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit stantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the interview with Luke. I'd like to dive back into the blood flow restriction training side of things and move away from the tendon stuff, but BFR within a rehab setting itself. Mm-hmm. Now there's different tech out there. There's obviously Vald have got their um, their cuffs. You've got Hytro who have got the t-shirts and everything built in. So you, these these solutions are becoming more popular and making it more able to be implemented across larger groups when pretty traditionally it was maybe a, a rehab tool because of the um, the barriers of, for, the, for the tech that was there. But I'd just like to get your take on implementing BFR with with larger groups and just an, why you would go down the blood flow restriction route in a general rehab setting. Sure. Well, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little preface there. I'm actually slightly involved with a uh, with a blood flow restriction training company called Suji BFR, who have, who have okay. developed their own cuff, which is um, so. I've I've given my little plug there, and um, definitely the what, best what? cuffs on the. Sorry, go what ahead. What is it, Luke? What's it called? What's it called? Suji BFR. Um, so, but to, to answer your question, um, yeah, this this new tech is making BFR far more implementable. Um, in, in your wider squads um, as you need to and as you see fit. And 
and that there's lots of different ways that you can implement it into your program that the primary ways that um, that we we would use the tech at edinburgh um, was part of a wider warm-up strategy and, and what the tech enabled us to do was was effectively lay out the uh, the suji cuffs on, on the table at the start of the at the start of the morning and and the players would filter through like they would as part of any other injury or, or training prep program um, that they'd grab the cuffs and, and they'd grab their ipads and they'd crack on and uh, i no longer had to manage that i no longer had to um, I had to oversee any of the BFR work. I'd check in with their exercise prescription and their programs as I would any other athlete. Um, but the level of tech allowed that to be really athlete-led and, and self-managed. Um, likewise, uh, we had one of our athletes who, who through, um, through injury history, was, was, was contraindicated to, to high volumes of, of heavy resistance training um, uh, throughout the course of a rugby season, and particularly while his training loads were high. Um, and so we'd use blood flow restriction training in, in that instance to try and make sure that we were still able to um, to provide him with a hypertrophy stimulus um, that wasn't going to provoke his um, provoke his symptoms. And that and, and again, I didn't need to oversee him. I didn't need to um, to help him set the kid up every day. He knew that post training he'd come in and he'd go he'd grab the cuffs. He actually ended up buying his own cuffs, um, and he'd come into the gym and he'd, and he'd crack on. So. The tech's there. Athletes are far more tech savvy and have more time on their hands to, to learn about it than, than we do. And um, and so you're really limited by your by your own imagination. Really, we've we've just started a um, a master's research project uh, with Glasgow City FC, who are looking at using it as a training adjunct for their players, um, where they're looking at markers of calf muscle function, hamstring muscle function. Um, in a in a BFR group and in a in a traditional uh, resistance training group, so that they're using it on a much larger group scale, and it'll be really interesting to see what um, what their result, results show us in a, um, in a in a female team based sport. Is that your little boy in the background? Yeah, sorry, right? mate. He's, yeah, he's <laughs> way fine. away. He's Don't he's worry. fine. He'll <laughs> be fine. fine. Good, good, good. <laughs> so, in terms of protocols for BFI, is it would it be similar usage to your pre-training, your 30, 15, 15, 15? So it's a really interesting question and and something that I'm quite passionate about exploring. Um, my understanding of where the research sits at the moment is a, a, a recommended BFR protocol, and uh, this is the most effective BFR protocol, doesn't necessarily exist. And uh, from my experience, blood flow restriction training it, it it behaves and should behave like like any other form of strength training and uh, and adheres to the same principles and so you should uh, uh, program accordingly. So to give you an example, there, blood flow restriction training, to to my understanding, will will adhere to uh, the said principle of a specific adaptation to an imposed demand. And and so if you're looking at implementing blood flow restriction training uh, to improve muscle hypertrophy. Then you're going to be looking at progressing the components of the training program that will elicit your metabolic stress response, and that will change your mechanical loading to the tissue because they're the two components that are going to drive muscle hypertrophy. So you'll look to to increase the metabolic stress. You might increase the the limb occlusion pressure, um, and 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 progress that variable um, to to change the the level of mechanical load. You might um, you, you might look at changing the exercise um, from a from a double leg to a single leg movement or, or something along those lines. Alternatively, if you're looking to use blood flow restriction training to improve muscle strength, then you'd probably use a different protocol because you're going to want to focus your aims primarily on changing uh, mechanical load because 
to develop strength that there is no substitute for mechanical load and so you'd probably look at keeping your your uh, your occlusion pressure to what we know and what we think is is the minimum minimum effective dose which is between 40 and 50 percent you'd keep that as your constant and you'd look to progress variables that will allow you to increase mechanical load uh, so i think what your program is is effectively stick to the principles that you know and stick to um, it, it will also adhere to, to diminishing returns um, and, and progressive overload. And, and so go stick with your normal S&C principles that you'd he- adhere to any other form of exercise prescription and, and they'll, they'll set you in good stead um, when you're implementing a blood flow restriction protocol. So you've kind of mentioned hypertrophy and strength, but is there any improvements that can be gained from BFR with more general athleticism, speed, jumps etc potentially um so so i know chris caviglio has uh, has published a, a paper a little while ago looking at the the use of blood flow restriction training as a uh, i guess as an alternative strategy to improve counter movement jump performance um there's little bits around uh, or, or there's an ongoing debate around the potential for blood flow restriction training to to enhance the recruitment of fast twitch muscle fibers um, and and I guess the concept of ischemic preconditioning um, using similar tech is um, is an area of interest as well. In terms of long-term training strategies to improve those athletic qualities, um, I think you would see improvements in those qualities through changing um, muscle hypertrophy or by improving muscle hypertrophy and muscle strength and some of the qualities that, that underlie the development of, of, of speed and, and athletic performance in that regard. That I don't think there's enough um, of a research backing at the moment um, to be able to, to say with any confidence that this is an intervention and a protocol that you should use if you want to use blood flow restriction training to increase speed. Is there anyone that you wouldn't use BFR with? Any examples that you can give us? Uh, so there's... Yeah, so I, I'm actually... Uh, so a massive, I guess, an area of interest for me is also the use of blood flow restriction training in clinical populations, and and it's been shown to be really effective in conditions of of, of osteoporosis. Um, we've used it in athletes with Crohn's disease, um, uh, polymyositis, dermomyositis, lots and lots of different conditions, and and sarcopenia, for example, that blood flow restriction training is being used in, and um, even end-stage kidney disease and, and individuals with hypertension are now being shown to be viable candidates for blood flow restriction training. Um, and, and I guess my, um, my, my point there is that if it's, if it's suitable and can be used with these guys, that there's not many that would fit into a, an elite athlete population that I'd be uncomfortable in, in using it with. Um, th- there is a little bit of apprehension, uh, particularly within the, within the medical teams, um, that blood flow restriction training um, may interfere with fluid dynamics in athletes with a joint effusion. Um, so we're a little bit apprehensive about using it in those scenarios. But some of the research from, uh, from Luke Hughes's research group uh, in ACL reconstruction have shown that um, or have demonstrated that there was no no effect on the blood flow restriction protocol that they used on on joint effusion in the long term management of a of an ACL rehabilitation. So to be honest, not I, I don't have any massive apprehensions around using it with any particular population, but we just adhere adhere to caution and and look at monitoring the potential for any adverse effects of the of the of the protocol. So you you had your little plug with Suji BFR. What mm-hmm. makes that tech different to? Anything else that's out there? 
Took the ball. No, no, completely fine. Um, uh, so basically, the Suji Tech is 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 probably comparable to, to, to the Valve device, the, the Airband, as to uh, as to what it offers the user in terms of being able to bespoke and personalize uh, the occlusion pressure to that individual. Um, I guess what the Suji device offers that's, that's a little bit different is, is the Suji device off, offers an app-based system that, that allows users to, um, to, to effectively be guided through uh, the blood flow restriction training process. Um, and, and, and what that involves is, is effectively them choosing from muscle strength-oriented programs, muscle hypertrophy-oriented programs, strength endurance, um, or if they want to use it as a, as a pain mitigation tool, what are going to be the most effective programs and the most effective exercise progressions. Um, and they try to then tailor those programs to the individual's um, uh, current state. Um, and that will be based off both self-reported physical performance um, and, and also... Uh, measures of RPE and and measures of, of, of fatigue along the way. Cool. Happy days. Right, we've got... I'm going to give us 15 minutes and I'd like to dive into a bit of an additional point to what we started off with in terms of the, the specific rehab role because there'll be plenty of people out there who are still the SNC coach who does everything. They're doing the rehab, they're doing the... The, the sports science side of things, doing the strength and power stuff. Um, and I'd like to give a bit of, bit of information for them guys from your point of view and planning the rehab process from, from start to finish. So athlete gets injured. What is your first port of call when you're planning the next four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, six months, nine months, depending on the injury? Where's, where's your head at? Uh, first of all, my head's at working with the medical team to make sure that we've got the diagnosis right. Um, and, and I know that sounds like a really simple place and, and, and perhaps an obvious place to start, but it's, it's, it often gets overlooked, um, not in terms of necessarily a, a misdiagnosis, but as an S&C coach, making sure you understand and that you've got all the information that you need uh, in order to, to start that rehab process with your medical team. Um, so, I'm always a I'm a big believer in a rehabilitation setting um, that that structure dictates function and and that you should plan your rehabilitation accordingly. Uh, so, for example, within within the hamstring, you've got three different hamstring muscles that all have a different anatomy, all have a different role to play in 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 sprint mechanics and and or acceleration. So you need to understand where the tear is, which hamstring is it in, whereabouts within that hamstring is is the tear and then the severity of it and until you have all that information available to you uh you don't you don't have all the information you need to write a really effective program um so the first things i'll be considering are are what what's our diagnosis um what's our predicted time frame for return uh, and then also having a really good understanding uh, of what the risk factors are for this athlete so that will consider the mechanism of injury um, and then also that athlete's longer standing injury history um, because they're the things that you're going to need to understand when you're looking at mitigating the risk for further injury um, and, and planning a successful rehabilitation uh, and, and then I think you can, once you have that information available to you, then you can start filling in the blanks uh, around, uh, around your stage-based return, what your criteria are going to need to be in order for that athlete to progress from stage to stage. 
Um, and I think the last thing you can, that, that you need to think about is, is which exercises you're going to prescribe. So planning it into phases, mm-hmm. how do you decide on what is the criteria to, to pass based to, to, to then move on to the next stage? Does that differ based on, obviously differs based on injury, but how do you pinpoint that is what we need to pass to, to progress? So we'll try and understand um, uh, effectively working back from or work, or starting with the end in mind, if you like. Um, so what are our higher end um, diagnostics going to be in order to for that athlete to return to play? Uh, and then once we understand those things, we can then develop a systematic process of, uh, of trying to progress them to that stage. Uh, so for example, if we look at a calf muscle injury, because that's a, a really pertinent injury at the moment and something that's, that, that's taking over professional team sport and, and taking the mantle from hamstring injuries, um, first and foremost, we need to understand, if we start at the beginning, we need to understand that the calf muscle, uh, the contractile elements are, are functioning appropriately and that they've returned to a basic level of function. And we need to understand that, that range of movement has come back so we can start to, to load that athlete appropriately. Uh, before we'd run them, we'd, we'd, we'd then start to look at whether the peak force generating capacity of that muscle has returned because we know with the calf muscle, even running at slow speeds, that that soleus and in particular is subjected to really high forces. So we need to know that the peak force generating capacity of that tissue has returned to, to pre-exercise, to pre-exercise um, levels. Once they've started that return to running and they're starting to progress to more intensive field-based activities and, and starting to specialize back into, into sport-specific training, we need to know that, that, that physical qualities like rate of force development and, and, and muscle tendon unit stiffness and, and those bits and pieces are, have returned and, and ideally improved. Um, and we can gain confidence um, that, um, that, that those metrics have returned. We then also need to consider uh, our loading progressions as well and, and how long it takes that athlete to, to, to accumulate um, enough exposures to, to, to running, to high-speed running, to accelerations, to change of directions um, and, and, and have a, an appropriate loading plan in place as well. So why, one thing you said at the start was calves taking over hamstring injuries is more, most prevalent in sport. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so we actually had quite a um, quite a good conversation about this with, um, with with Nick Lumley, and and there's some really great research coming out from um, from a group that have called themselves the the Calf Project, um, which is Rob Whiteley and, and Seth O'Neill's group out at Aspatar, and and from what we can understand, effectively when we look at load management principles uh, in in professional team sport. When we, when we see either a spike in, in training intensity or a spike in our training loads, our initial reaction is to, is to reduce the intensity of training because we know that, um, that, that a spike in, in training load, whether you're using an acute chronic work ratio or an exponentially weighted moving average, whichever, whichever metric you choose to use, we try and reduce the intensity of training because, because that's going to minimize our risk of hamstring injury, which has been the, 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 our primary cause of soft tissue injury over the past 10 years and it's probably going to alleviate the stress on your on your groin and on your rec fem as well and some of your other major uh, other major soft tissue injuries what it doesn't do reducing the in training the training the intensity of training rather it doesn't change the load that goes through your calf because we know uh, from um, from some of the work out of, uh, here in melbourne we know that even at slow running speeds 
the calf muscle is still working incredibly hard and is still subjected to really high ground reaction forces. And actually, as you progress intensity, we don't see the massive spike in, in load through that structure that we do in, in, in other soft tissues. And so I think a lot of our focus has been on managing hamstring risk, managing groin and, and adductor risk that we haven't really developed effective strategies at, at managing uh, managing our calves. And, and I think the other thing is when you tend to reduce the intensity, you reduce you, you might reduce the size of your playing field and inadvertently increase um, change of direction and acceleration tasks, which we know the role of the soleus is so diverse and wide ranging around the ankle and the knee that it has a massive role in those things and in, in those and those high force tasks. Um, we also don't know a lot about what are our diagnostics that inf, inf, inform our our calf management strategy. So we're starting to learn that that a, an effective seated plantar flexion test uh, or seated isometric plantar flexion test can be a really useful diagnostic to identify those at risk of calf injury. But that level of research is is still really in its infancy, um, and and we don't know enough about that yet to be able to be really prescriptive with our exercise. So how did you guys Edinburgh manage the calf loading? Yeah, so uh, I mean, I hope Nick doesn't mind me saying, but the evidence would suggest not particularly well. Um, okay. <laughs> and like like most clubs around uh, around Europe in particular, uh, and from the from the RFU data and and from the level of um, of of effort and resource that the IRFU are going through to to get on top of things, we know that this this problem is not is not um, is not new to anyone and it's not something that one club in particular is dealing with it's something that everyone's struggling with and uh, I think I mean it's a, it's a conversation for another day but I think COVID's also changed the rules about about training load management and that's thrown us all into a bit of a tiz and um, so yeah to be honest not particularly well but I, I do believe that the the processes and the structures and the reviews that we've gone through have have highlighted new strategies that that will be implemented up there without me there um and and i hope that um that 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 will will set the club in good stead moving forward would you tackle that differently i know going back a few years now but would you tackle that differently in different sports and if so what would change potentially i mean i think when you're when you're managing soft tissue risk or doing your best to, to manage soft tissue risk, because that's effectively all any of us are doing, um, we're doing everything that we can. I think you just need to understand um, what are your prime, what are the primary risk factors of your sport, and and that comes down to having a really really good and really um, robust injury surveillance system, so you effectively know what your problems are, um, and and understanding the risk factors of your sport. So so for example, in rugby union, I'm actually not a, a, a big advocate. Um, for really, uh, I guess, in-depth use of, of GPS in, in rugby union. And I, I, that's not to say I, I don't believe it has its place. I, I absolutely do, and I would, I would certainly use it and use it um, extensively. But understanding its limitations, because a lot of the risk factors from rugby union come from static exertions, um, and, and those uh, you can't possibly quantify the intensity of rugby union currently through a through a gps device and and so you need to understand within each of your sports what are your primary risk factors um if and how are you going to quantify them and and what are your primary injuries that you're trying to deal with and that you're trying to understand lovely well i'm conscious that i'm taking up some of your evening and 
there's a little boy in there who probably wants to wants his dad <laughs> wants his dad. But where can where can people get in touch with you, Luke, and and have a little chat about what you've got going on the rebels or anything that we've just just discussed? Um, I to be honest, I'm not that um, uh, I'm not that active on social media. Um, I, I can be like I can be yeah no it's it's not really for me but um i i will certainly um receive anything through twitter or or linkedin i I do tend to use linkedin quite a little bit to to network um my email address at the rebels i imagine will be quite easy to um quite easy to to find and more than happy to for people to reach out via any of those platforms and and i'll certainly respond to everyone and and happy to chat more and, and, and try and learn more Superb. Well, thank you very much for uh, for coming on. Thank you for fitting me into a very busy schedule that you've got coming up, um, especially <laughs> with the move over back home. And um, yeah, really appreciate it. And I'll, I'll chat to you soon, mate. Perfect. Thanks very much, Rob. Cheers, Luke. Thanks for tuning in to episode 357 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Firstly, a big thanks to you for giving up your time to tune into the podcast and have a little listen to my conversation with Luke. Obviously, huge thanks to Luke for giving up his time. I think only a couple of days into his uh, new role at the Melbourne Rebels. So really appreciate him carving out some time in his, in his very busy diary. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I always do appreciate their support. So if you haven't pressed subscribe on your chosen podcast player, make sure you do now, and I will look forward to chatting to you next week.